Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 122 of the SLS Cast. Yes ladies and gentlemen, it is the Angel Number episode. Of the SLS cast, specifically the thoughts and faith as sacred tools angel number episode of the SLS cast. Because when you see repeating numbers all around you for days or sometimes weeks at a time, that is considered an angel number. And in the series of angel numbers, 122 means that you should consider your thoughts and faith as sacred tools available to you every second of your life. With that little bit of inspirational, motivational, under-the-bridge speaking, I, of course, am Matt, and coming to us from the Sony Factory Materials line, where he's been issuing the Walkman SRF 39FPs, putting them together all day long. It is, of course... My ultrasound came in today. (laughs) It's a boy! (laughs) Tim! (laughs) Yay, Tim! Now, I'm not sure if you are familiar with what the Walkman SRF39FP is. I'm familiar with what a Walkman is, but not necessarily that particular model. Oh, well, this one is, uh, the FP stands for Federal Prison. Because that's the uh, prison issue version of the Sony Walkman, where it is completely clear, um, and so you can't hide any contraband inside it, and they can see exactly what it is. Um, so you know. when you went to prison in the early '90s, late '80s, you were given a Walkman, or you could buy them. I assume. Oh, okay. You could buy them. However, in an interesting turn, they're very efficient. Apparently, uh, on just one AA battery, they can run for forty hours. No shit, really? Yeah. Oh. And pick up radio reception through the prison walls and stuff. So Wow. Could they also act as, like, bomb-triggering devices? I suppose it's theoretically possible. But there and again, I guess that's what all the clear stuff is for, so that um, you would have to modify it in some way that would be very easily visible if you were to try and do that. Well, it, well since we're talking about bomb-triggering devices, how was your Easter? I was fine. We, um, we, I went over to my brother and sister-in-law's place. They had, uh, we had roasted pork loin, uh, mashed potatoes, gravy, and stuffing, and green bean casserole, and, um, you know, like, like hors d'oeuvres and all this fun stuff. And there was like pie and cake available for dessert and everything. Mm. Um, we had, uh, we had a discussion on the finer points of whether or not kids, should be convicted and turned into sexual predators for life under <sighs> distribution of child porn charges <laughs> for distributing uh, selfies, you know, sexting and what have. So healthy and honest. Yeah, yeah. Sunday conversation. I, yes, talking about it. And it turns out that um, now let me ask you a question, Tim. Oh. We Go. we have had we we've definitely had our share of discussions, both civil and not so civil, about 
our feelings on you know certain religious things, certain political things, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Would you, in any way, shape, or form, classify me as a liberal? No, I am now a liberal according to my in-laws because I don't <laughs> think that it's right that you should convict a 16-year-old kid for child porn because his girlfriend, who was also 16, sent him a naked selfie. I knew it, Matt. Deep down inside, you're wearing the blue underwear of a donkey. I'm telling you. Now, if only I was hung like one. (laughs) (laughs) Then you'd be the real Peter Cockintail. (laughs) (laughs) No, but seriously. So we were getting, and, and, you know, the opposing side was that of, well, you have to draw a line and it should discourage them. I'm like, when was the last time a 16 year old ever thought about something longer, you know, in terms of length, longer than the next school dance or the next day? Right. They're not looking at it from that perspective. And you can't, you know, so we got into this big, huge thing. And um, apparently now I'm a liberal. I think what really did it was when I was telling them about how. um, How the criminal justice system uh, with with zero tolerance policies in terms of sentencing guidelines and minimum sentences and stuff like that, especially for drug related offenses and what have you, is. Uh, unintentionally racist and and oh boy that just completely you know was like they're all like that's impossible i'm like no guys guys come on seriously follow me here and i literally (laughs) i walked them through you know how welfare how there's when you don't have any money for a lawyer and how a lot of the people the vast majority of people who are adversely affected are african-american and i'm like you guys you seriously don't see this Right. And then when you get out of jail, you can't get a job because the first thing they ask you is, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And then anytime you're convicted, they automatically say no. I mean, you guys not say, and I mean, I walked them through the whole thing. And yeah, so I'm apparently I'm a liberal now. Next time on Fresh Air, we'll be speaking. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be getting down to the bare bones of why Matt Quinton converted to liberalism. I guess, uh, you know. <sighs> oh well. So, how was your? Uh, I hope less. Uh, you know, your your you know, a, a little bit more socially constructive <laughs> uh, Easter. My w- Easter w- did- was nice. Uh, yeah. Beautiful out here. I think it was like a high of sixty-five and bright blue skies with you know beautiful clouds. We went down to or over to Malibu Beach. And we ate a bunch of seafood. We got one of those uh, fried seafood combo platters where you had your fried fish, your fried shrimp, your fried uh, 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 scallops, and your French fries. And you got your clam chowder and your mashed... They have uh, a potato salad there, too, which is actually really good. Had a few beers, laid it on the beach. It was an absolutely delicious Easter for myself. So... Well, outstanding. Yeah, surrounded well, by liberals. The, aside surrounded from, by liberals. Yeah, and aside from me being now a dysfunctional liberal in my family, um, the food was good. I definitely also enjoyed the food. Well, I mean, that's kind of a small price to pay, you know, for a super conservative household. You might have to sit <laughs> through the talk, but by God, you can stuff your face while listening to the bitchin'. There you go. There you go. 
<sighs> so, here we are, April 6th. Oh, uh, have you done your taxes yet? Yes, I did. Just I, I did my curious. taxes like two months ago. Nice, yeah. nice. I, uh, um, we are on the last thing. I literally think uh, Jen has to like click send. I don't know what the holdup is yet. Uh, I guess. That's very liberal so. of you guys to wait to the last you, week. Yes, very yes, liberal. I, I, you would think that it's uh, we would be doing it sooner, but apparently we're not. <laughs> Just you, remember, folks, you, you have nine days until the 15th. <laughs> or by the sh- time the show posts, six days. Ooh, even, oh, yeah, there you go. For all you yuppies out there, like Matt here. I'm telling you. Yeah, so. <sighs> anyway. Shall we go ahead and get to our news? Yes. Let's do it then. Here we go, folks. It is the liberal news. Yes, everything's liberal now. <laughs> what do you want me to do first? You want me to do uh, Disney or Lifetime? Um, do you have to ask? Let's go Lifetime. <laughs> All right. Coming to us from NewYorkDailyNews.com, courtesy of Philip Caulfield. Will Ferrell and Kristen Will oh, Good God, I can't even talk. Will Ferrell and Kristen Wig film secret lifetime movie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Will Ferrell and Kristen Wig are headed to Lifetime. The former SNL alums teamed in a secret to shoot a lifetime movie that will serve as a campy send-up to the melodramatic made-for-TV fair the network is famous for. The Hollywood Reporter reports, The flick is called A Deadly Adoption and has Farrell and Wig playing a couple who adopts a pregnant girl in order to adopt her unborn daughter. As the title suggests, things don't go as planned. Yeah. Um, just for the record, Lifetime's in on the joke, positioning it as a celebration of its 25 years on air written by will ferrell and adam mckay the get hard actor produced the two-hour feature with funnier die partner and frequent collaborator adam mckay it does not say here whether or not he wrote it with him or not but it was produced with uh will ferrell and adam mckay should be interesting i mean i'm glad that they're allowed to do that i i mean this really has the makings of being something very funny and I'm, and I really think that if there are two people who could pull it off, it is definitely Kristen Wiig and Will Ferrell. So I am, I am excited to see this for sure. What do you got for us, sir? All right. First off, pertains to Robin Williams from Yahoo Movies. Robin Williams restricted exploitation of his image for 25 years after death. This is via The Hollywood Reporter as well from March 31st, 2015, written by Eric Gardner. And it says, on Monday, which is, I guess, two Mondays ago, the family of Rob Williams gathers in a San Francisco courtroom in a quarrel over how to divide personal property such as jewelry and memorabilia. Unfortunately, the dispute overshadows one of the more innovative aspects of Rob Williams's estate planning which just might become a model for other celebrities preparing for their demise. After all, one thing his wife Susan and children Zachary and Zelda and Cody won't be discussing in court is intangible property like the late actor's right of publicity. 
According to a review of Rob Williams' trust, filed as an exhibit last Wednesday, Williams bequeathed rights to his name, signature, photograph, and likeness to the Windfall Foundation, a charitable organization set up by Williams' legal reps at the law firm of Minat Phelps. There are two important facets of this provision. First, the trust restricts exploitation of Rob Williams' right of publicity for 25 years after his death. That means there won't be any authorized advertisements featuring Williams until at least August 11th, 2039. The provision also interferes with someone immediately doing, say, a hologram of Rob Williams, stand-up routine, or digitally inserting him into a new film. Quote, it's interesting that Williams restricted use for 25 years, end quote, says Laura Zwicker, an attorney at Greenberg Glusker who counsels high net worth individuals on estate and tax planning. Quote, I haven't seen that before. I've seen restrictions on the types of uses, no Coke commercials, for example, but not like this. It could be a privacy issue, end quote. Or maybe Williams's reps were aware of the novel technologies that have the power of resurrecting dead celebrities and hoped to avoid anything that could tarnish his legacy. The trust's publicity rights provision is cutting edge in another way. If the Windfall Foundation is deemed ineligible for a charitable deduction by the Internal Revenue Code, the trust mandates that Rob Williams' publicity rights be distributed to one or more charitable organizations with a similar purpose. For instance, Doctors Without Borders, AIDS, Make-A-Wish, etc., which qualify for such charitable deductions. Um, and then it goes on. This appears to be a direct reaction to a dispute happening at the moment between the estate of Michael Jackson and the IRS over how to value the late singer's publicity rights for estate tax purposes. Yada, 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 and yada, a yada, and a yada. Matt, any comments, any questions, any concerns? But you yada, yada, the best part. Or did you already mention the bisque? I can't remember. The bisque? Anyway. It's, you know, Seinfeld. Oh. You can't yada yada sex. Sure you can. I went out with this guy. We had I had the bisque, yada yada yada, and I went home the next day. But you yada yada the best part. Hey, I mentioned the bisque. Anyway, um, so, you know, <laughs> jokes are never funny when you have to explain them. All right. Uh, all right. <clears throat> A little too obscure. Uh, you know, I, I think this is good, mainly because... In life, he was always very concerned with what, um, with, with how his image was being used and how he was perceived. If you take a look at the, the charities he supported, uh, and of course, most famously, the whole Disney debacle, uh, when it came to Aladdin and everything like that. So it seems only fitting that he would want a kind of a, resting period for people to truly remember him and in 25 years you i think you have a much better opportunity for things people who would like to use him in advertising or uh, his likeness or anything to really get to the spirit of how robin williams would have been remembered and everything um for example take a look at steve mcqueen uh, with the when the Mustang was redesigned, uh, 
back in 2003, I think it was? Yeah, 2003, 2004. Yeah, and it got that amazing redesign that was basically straight out of muscle car from the 70s. And they use and it was something that definitely was very Steve McQueen. Um you if people were to do that now, it'd be very haphazard and then of course it only gets into the whole money grabbing thing and people continuing to fight over it. That kind of a time time frame I think really is um, I think it's good. It gives time for wounds to heal, people to move on, and um, and the memory to be truly respected. It in terms of like the digital side of it, for like, uh, for example, Paul Walker or something like that. Um, I don't know. I would say that I don't think that's really that big of an issue. There are usually certain steps as best as possible taken uh in the event someone could theoretically die um that that last film or whatever they're currently working on would be able to you know try and recoup potential losses or anything by trying to cover for it so yeah in that term in that respect take it or leave it but i i think it's a good move overall i i think when people pass away they they passed away. Why do people want to use them for an advertisement? That just really bothers me. You know, it's like it's. I think it it all kind of attributes to how how everybody is so hung up in nostalgia now. You know, like how you're going to be talking about um, yet another Disney uh, rehash of a classic cartoon that just came out. You know, uh, less than twenty years ago, for example. We're, all, sure. we're living in nostalgia, and unfortunately, Rob Williams... Well, not unfortunately, but Rob Williams was a big part of my childhood, and a big part of Matt's, and a big part of most uh, people that are under the age of, you know, 50 or younger, you know, even 60 or younger, you know, grew up, or not grew up, but was around when he was doing Mork and Mindy, was doing stand-up in New York and stuff. You know, people are so hung up on that nostalgia factor, and not and, and we're, we're so kind of... Uh, we don't like the idea of completely losing somebody, but there's that's kind of healthy because we're not always going to be reminded of that person. Therefore, we shouldn't have to have a virtual copy of an actor to use in a movie in the future or even in advertisements or whatnot. And I, I kind of think that's also kind of sick in a way, like using somebody's face for a Coca-Cola advertisement when they've been dead for 15, 20, even 25 years. All right. Well, then, last but not least for me um, is a pair of Disney uh, news stories, one of which uh, I totally forgot to mention to Tim in our pre-show, so sorry about that. But it's completely related, so it won't take very long. Uh, From TheHollywoodReporter.com, courtesy of Rebecca Ford, Disney, developing live-action Mulan. This was an exclusive for them. Now, I, I guess once they figured out that this formula of redoing stuff from the animated world into live action could work, um, it's just never going to stop. And I, I honestly think, see, that's what Once Upon a Time was really about. Because it's never really been a ratings juggernaut, but they keep it afloat. And they and they keep that show going despite its lackluster ratings. Uh, 
And I think that's why. I think they just put all the hotbed ideas. Oh, let's see if this will stick. Let's let's try this and see. Just so they can figure out which characters are interesting, good, which characters they should try to bring back, which characters translate the best into a live-action format just so they can throw it up and create a new movie, much like they are doing. Which, in this case, is on the heels of the magical success of Disney's live-action Cinderella. The studio is eyeing another live-action retelling Mulan! The article goes on to say Disney bought a script by writing team Elizabeth Martin and Lauren Hynek that centers on the Chinese legend of Hua Mulan, the female warrior who was the main character in Disney's 1998 animated film. So just as Tim mentioned, this was 17 years ago. And they're just, I don't think they're ever going to stop. They're just, never. Never, never, never. And I think in certain ways it's good, but... And I did like Cinderella. So I don't know. If, I, I just am constantly worried that where they've been thoughtful and successful in trans in, in certain transitions, I think they'll just run it into the ground faster than they should. Uh, on a related note, someone uh, released or, or leaked, rather, a D23 Expo for 2015 a slated release for all of disney's um movies that are coming out and this is uh this was submitted by syracuse orange 44 a user on reddit and it says here that walt disney animation studios has a movie let's see here so march of 2016 brings us this is from walt disney animation studios brings us zootopia uh november of 2016 brings us moana uh march of 2018 brings us giants and then november of 2018 brings us frozen 2 uh finally at some point in 2019 there is a quote Untitled Disney animation movie about races, end quote. Interesting. Disney Pixar release schedule says The Good Dinosaur is coming to us uh, in November of 2015. Finding Dory comes to us in June of 2016. Toy Story 4 is June of 2017. Muertos is November of 2017. The Incredibles 2 is june of 2018 and cars 3 is slated for sometime in 2019 it's pretty interesting though um finding dory is june 17th 2016 toy story is toy story 4 is june 16th 2017 and incredibles 2 is june 15th 2018 so it looks like they're hitting the same friday or wednesday or whatever that's going to be uh last but not least we've got disney tune studios schedule quote the untitled disney tune movie about magic and monsters end quote is 2017 there is a sequel to this movie coming in 2019 and tinkerbell and the unknown season is slated for 2020 so there you go have a little bonus when disney's releasing stuff what do you got there, Tim? What do you think? Any comments, questions, concerns, issues? 
dear God, please, Matt, be done. (laughs) No, I just hope they make some more original content that's different than their previous content. In terms of live action or in terms or just overall? Uh overall, uh especially live action because I there, there's so much animation and granted uh, a, a lot of it is really good and most of it is super successful but I think they really need a I mean they they put so much focus on animation that they kind of left live action off in the dust and that's why we're getting these rehash of old Disney cartoons or classic Disney cartoons. So, I mean, I'm not talking about like a new princess movie, you know, or, or anything like that, but just something else that Disney can put their name on that isn't like pirates or, you know, what about Swiss family Robinson? I mean, I mean, you know, they, they, I would like to see that kind of thing again, not necessarily Swiss family Robinson. They've been talking about a Swiss family Robinson though for a while. Well, that would be cool, uh, but I'm just not specific, like, because they did do cool stuff, you know? I mean, for as silly as it was, Shaggy Dog and stuff like that. uh, Well, they're doing another Pete's Dragon. That'd be cool. But see, again, all rehashes of existing stuff, so I I feel you, I feel you. So what do you got, sir? Bring us home on the news. What do you have for us? From thehollywoodreporter.com, what's behind a Europe plan that would destroy independent film? Bum, bum, bum. Written by Scott Roxborough. This is uh, an article from March 30th of 2015. And this uh, originally appeared in the April 10th issue of the Hollywood Reporter magazine. It says this. A new proposal by the European Commission to change European copyright law could, if its critics are are to be believed, wreak havoc on the independent film business both in Europe and in Hollywood. Quote, if it goes through, it would literally destroy the business, end quote, says David Garrett of London-based sales outfit Mr. Smith Entertainment, which handles DreamWorks titles across Europe. Quote, that's no exaggeration. It would be the death knell, end quote. At issuer plans proposed by European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker to break down that he calls the national silos in copyright legislation by getting rid of territorial exclusivity. At the moment, any film or TV series, whether European or American, is licensed separately to all 28 countries in the European Union. When Lionsgate sold The Hunger Games to Europe, for example, it kept the franchise for the UK. Whether it has its own distribution operation, but did separate territorial deals with distributors such as Studio Canal in Germany and France's Metropolitan. This territory-by-territory licensing is the rule in Europe and is how most independent films get financed. Depending on the movie, pre-selling a film in Europe can account for 30% to 60% of a film's budget, which such European directors as Lars von Trier, Mike Lee, and Pedro Almdovar rely on pre-sales to territories to get films made. But Junker's plans to create a digital single market in Europe, something he outlined when he took over as European Commission president in November, could put an end to that, replacing national, territorial copyright with a single pan-European copyright. 
The proposal, which will be officially tabled by the Commission in May, is intended to, quote, ensure that customers can access services, music, uh, movies, and sports events, dot, 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 wherever they are in Europe and regardless of borders, end quote. The idea has obvious appeal among European consumers. A European Commission spokeswoman cites a survey from two, survey from 2011 that found one in five EU citizens was interested in receiving content from other EU countries, and 27% wanting to watch content from home while abroad. Quote, Europeans do not understand why they cannot access content they have paid for when they travel abroad, end quote, she says, quote, in the same way they cannot understand why they cannot access content they are willing to pay for, end quote. British Business Secretary Vince Cable has argued that creating a digital single market in Europe could add $370 billion to the continent's economy by making it easier to sell content across borders. Quote, it's absurd, end quote, counters Martin Maskowitz, head of film and TV at German production giant Constant Film. On the idea of a single pan-European copyright, he notes Constantine titles such as the Hitler drama Downfall or Tom Tyker's Perfume, The Story of a Murderer, each of which grossed more than $100 million worldwide, would have been, quote, practically impossible, end quote, to finance without territory-by-territory licensing. Quote, if you had a single pan-European license, who buys it? Really, who buys it? Only the studios would be in position to buy for all of Europe, and even they don't want to do it, end quote. He says, noting that the majors typically sub-license their films in smaller European territories where they lack distribution operations. I can vouch for that. Sony does that, and I, that's the department I work for. Uh, in the article, article goes on uh, from there, um, but I will read this last little paragraph with these quotes here, and I'll end... My rambling there. Quote, if you take any territorial exclusivity, you hand over the ability to distribute to a tiny handful of, uh, of multi-nation companies that are not curating for a local audience and aren't interested in doing so, end quote, says Jean Pruitt, CEO president of the Independent Film and Television Alliance. Quote, it will push everyone to produce content that appeals across borders, which would inevitably be English-language films with the broadest appeal produced by multinations. That flies in the face of how the independent industry operates. End all quotes there. Uh, and there are a, about four or five chunks of dialogue, big paragraphs there that I didn't read. Uh, there's also this little chart here, a how territorial pre-sales helped for European movies get made charts where they categorize the movie Amour, which came out in 2012, Carnage, 2011, Contiki, came out in 2012, and A Royal Affair, which came out in 2012 as well. And it has the budget, the pre-sells, the production, and private investors, and the uh, and the subsidies, percentage, and uh, dollars in millions. And it's kind of interesting perusing through it because you don't really think of it, but it can actually, it can definitely uh, um, tarnish the quality of a film, you know, because it's one thing when you make a movie specifically for a, uh, for a, not, not necessarily for a group of people, but a, but a, but a group of people that speak 
a particular language, you know, any foreign film, like say Amor, you know, uh, like this, the one guy was saying that like with this new law, like with a single uh, EU distributor, Amor easily could have just been in, been all English because that would have appealed to more countries all over Europe, opposed to it being in France, which the movie is good enough to appeal to other people, but yet they don't see it that way because they know people uh, my age, you know, in their late, mid to late 20s, teenagers would rather see a movie in English than reading it in France. Or, excuse me, reading it in French or reading subtitles in French. And I'm not talking about just Americans, but Australians. Uh, even German, even, would, would probably prefer uh, prefer English over French. So I think Fre- the French are the only ones that actually prefer French over French. No, I'm kidding. I definitely, like, that movie in particular, you know, that movie deserves to be in French. You know, most, every single foreign language movie deserves to be in their native language. No matter the movie, whether it be bad or good, it deserves to be in their native language. Matt, what do you think? Gosh, it's just so dizzying. There's so many things to consider. Um... I guess at the end of the day, I think that there, there's got to be some kind of common sense way to allow people who buy things to, to have some kind of digital enable, I don't know what you want to call it, so that when you get something that's region locked, but you're from that region and you go somewhere else, you should still be able to have that. Um, there's just gotta be a way. And it's, and this is something that's been an issue for a very long time. I mean, really since DVD, it's, it, so this is not something that's new. This is, this is a problem that has been going on for years. As a matter of fact, I ran into it two Christmases ago with, um, a Pixar collection. I was trying to get the entire Pixar collection. I saw it on pre-order on Amazon for like 275 bucks, and it was like all 14 movies plus um, stuff that it was some all of their shorts broken down individually, all of it on Blu-ray. This really badass thing, and then Amazon had to yank it because it was only for uh, it was only British, you know, and so a couple of the movies would not have worked here in the states uh so i don't know i think there's just got to be a way to do it i I, but i don't know how i don't know there there's got to be a common sense way i just can't think of how it would work spoken like a true liberal damn straight (laughs) all right well um that will go ahead and conclude the news And before we move on to our movies, just a quick reminder, this episode and next episode, due to uh, some traveling I'm going to have to do next week, um, we are not having a bonus segment. However, I did make sure to check the email on time, and we didn't have anything. So, no followers, no emails, but please feel free to send us emails, the show at slscast.com. So, I guess that will bring us to... Yes, so we're closing out the rest of the Fast and Furious franchise here. So we're going to be covering Fast and Furious, Fast Five, Furious Six, or Fast and Furious Six, or whatever, or Fast Six, depending on who you talk to, and Furious Seven. 
Coming to us first, of course, the 2009 Fast and Furious. Um, this is one that picks up after... Okay, now remember, folks, 4, 5, and 6 in the story of these wonderful people all take place before the events of Tokyo Drift. Now, I take exceptional issue with this because they should have had Tokyo Drift be a prequel, a just a complete prequel to the entire franchise, but no, they didn't want to do it that way. Um, and, and, and it pays for it later on when we get to... Fast and Furious 6, I'll explain it to you. So this one picks up five years after uh, L.A., basically. This is after the first movie is when this is supposed to be occurring. Even though it was eight years after the first movie came out. We are putting the original team back together again. Uh, Dom is in... Dom's got a new crew. Um... He's got his girlfriend, Letty, and everything. And then we have um, a deal going bad. Uh, you've got all these wonderful people uh, who you will come to notice, uh, come to know and love over the course of the next few movies, chiefly Letty and Han, but whatever. Um, deal goes bad, and now we have a... Um, a, a solo Dom who gets a call from his sister saying that Letty's been murdered. He goes to figure out what happened. Of course, he now runs back into FBI agent Brian O'Connor. Um, remember, he went from being a cop to being a rogue guy suckered into working for the customs service or whatever and is now an FBI agent. Alrighty. Um... He ends up teaming up with uh, Dom, not not out of any kind of loyalty. They end up just kind of being forced to work together because um, Letty's murder is related to a drug lord. And so it then comes out that um, Brian actually had Letty working undercover, which is what put her in the situation to killed so now this is our uh, our our plot entanglement if you will and then from there it pretty much just does all the car races and the car racing and the ridiculous stunts and everything works out by the end of the movie um it's it's not bad this one definitely I I was still liking Tokyo Drift. I it's still one of my favorites. I understand it's not the most well received of all of them and that it's and that people definitely really start liking uh 5 and especially 6 um uh, in terms of the entire franchise and everything. I I think in terms of trying to reset this and create a alternate universe where they can lead up to the events of Tokyo Drift it was inventive and it was fun. Uh, the stunts are pretty cool. The racing was interesting. Most of the stuff that, that a lot of this drug stuff takes place over the border, including uh, some races that occur in underground tunnels under the border. And I'm sure you may have heard about them in the news at some point. These, I guarantee you these underground tunnels are not like this. If you think they're like this, then you're watching too many Fast and Furious movies. Um, 
but it's the same. It's a continuation of the same kind of stuff that you've seen in the previous three movies. Only now they're trying to reground the entire franchise into the people who initially, who initially set it up. Um, at the end of the day, the movie's okay. I I can't honestly say I like it like it, but it is better than okay. So, for the more of the same and rebooting what they tried to reboot. 2.75. Okay, you're going to hear this a lot. Everything is just so convenient. Um, For one thing, when Letty dies, I thought it was very in- interesting that people just accepted that she was dead when there was no body or there was no, like... Proof like, oh hey, here here here's your here's your here's your girlfriend's teeth, <laughs> you know that we recovered from the from the crash burn site, or something like that. They just like automatically, you know, they they hear like you know the guys like, oh I watched her face getting burned off, you know that doesn't actually that doesn't that doesn't happen till later on. But when they're when they're at the funeral again, just automatically, you know, somebody hears she's dead, we're just gonna completely believe it. Why not? Um. Also, nothing really felt at stake during this movie. And this is something that that kind of gets worse as the series goes on. You know, like, once they start trying to outdo the previous movie, sometimes it just gets a little too ridiculous. And, and I just, like, with all the CGI, um, the first Fast and Furious movie, there's a little bit of CGI. But for the most part, a lot of the races, like, whenever you actually see a car racing or flipping over or crashing... It's a real crash for the most part. You know, real stunts happening. In Too Fast, Too Furious, they incorporated a whole bunch of CGI. Um, Tokyo Drift was more of like stylized CGI mixed with stunts and real racing, which was alright. But this one, they it's not only CG cars... But it's CG environment, especially with the Mexican tunnels or going under the border and whatnot... It was just ridiculous. I mean, this is when you first realize or get a taste of where the franchise is going. Into the absurd. Because these car chases are absolutely absurd. Going through these tunnels, going through these caves, people jumping from one car into the other while they're going like 85 miles per hour. Um, and not really running into any debris or any of like the, any, any stuff falling from the ceiling of the cave or anything like that. It's just everything is either too convenient or too, uh, or, or, or just too over the top. Um, and to me, it just felt like, you know, nothing was at stake really, you know, like, like you, I wasn't even attached to the characters. Um, and also, like, when a character needs to escape a particular situation, like a, a particular life or death situation, it happens a lot in this movie. There's always an easy way out. And I like to call this, in, uh, it's an, I like to call this an it-just-so-happened type of movie. Like, when uh, uh, they're in the tunnel, they're in the cave, and Brian O'Connor, who has never seen these tunnels or been inside... Uh, oh, wait, yeah, he has. Um, but he's in these, yeah, he's in the tunnel and he has no idea where he's going. And it just so happens, like, uh, you know, instead of like stopping when he thinks it's coming to an end or slow down or like look around, he just automatically takes a left and all of a sudden, 
boom, into a wall. He goes through a wall, and it, and I guess the wall's made of paper mache or something. And suddenly, you know, he's in this other cave, and it just works out. It's just all too convenient. Again, it just so happens type of movie. Uh, and one th- more thing um, that I thought was kind of interesting is that in the first Fast and the Furious, he becomes one with the secret underground racing you know, group of folk. And the second one, he is very much a part of the secret underground team of racing folk, though he is in Miami. And in Fast Five, he's trying to go undercover and hoping that nobody recognizes him, the very same secret underground racing community that he's been involved with for many years. And yet nobody even recognizes him. A little Are you talking about Fast Five or Fast Four? Fast Four. Okay. Yeah, Fast Four. Um, because in Fast you, Five, you said Fast Five. Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. I meant Fast. I meant I meant Fast Four. Because in Fast okay. Five, they turn around and recognize him, and so it's like, wow, well, they completely forgot about <laughs> what what happened two years before, or the year before, or no, actually, it was just like months before, because Fast Four leads directly into Fast Five. So, I mean, with that, I give Fast and Furious one point two five. There wasn't much excitement to it. It was a little too boring, a little too... uh, Not a lot going on. I mean, now you get a a good taste of Frank Toretto's... uh, uh, Or Dominic Toretto's Vin Diesel's soap opera side, for sure. It gets very soap opera-y from here on out with uh, Dominic Toretto. So 1.25 out of 5 for Fast and Furious... All right. Well, then we jump to 2011's Fast Five, officially now. And and again, now, just for the flow of consistency, Justin Lin did, he directed Tokyo Drift, Fast and Furious, Fast Five, and then Fast and Furious 6 or Furious 6. Um, and you, and as Tim noted... You're starting to see a transition in Fast and Furious, um, where it's it's trying to get away or trying to it's trying to do different things in terms of the car culture, but shift the focus of the action to a more international scale. And I think that's why they to to kind of, that that's why they don't notice him in the fourth movie where because now it's kind of a border thing he's he was known on the west coast he was known on the east coast but now is he known on the border with drug cartels and stuff so i could see that that's where they would get away with it but then now you're supposed to be going to rio in fast five which is where he gets caught because now it's an international thing and i think that that was the point I, I'm not trying to accuse Fast and Furious of being high art here or anything, but I'm, I, I think that was kind of the idea was they were trying to give it a feasible transition because if you notice in Fast 5 and then by Fast 6, it's all gone. Any semblance of the car racing is pretty much gone. This is a heist movie by the time you, by the time Fast 5 gets there, you realize it's a complete heist movie. Um, Fast Six is going to be a revenge movie, and then, um, or, or a redemption kind of movie, I guess it's supposed to be Fast Six is redemption, and then Furious Seven is going to be a, a revenge kind of movie. So 
you're seeing this kind of transition that takes place. And I got to give Justin Lin a, a lot of credit in that regard is that he, he, he is consciously trying to make that shift. So now we find ourselves in Fast Five. Uh, we've got our team getting put together. Paul Walker is now criminal on the run from the FBI. Uh, they're all working together, as, a, but they're a family again, because, you know, the whole series is about family, and you gotta be, you know, yay All of family. a sudden, too. It's like, all of a sudden, now it's about family and friends, and... Well, that's not, no, that's not totally fair, because the very first movie was a family thing. Well, that's, but yeah, but it was more of like a... It, it broke away from that in 2 and 3, but that's because they were completely unrelated to the first one. They just carried the name, and then they brought... Then they brought it back to kind of reboot this trilogy to, to bring a trilogy. But it was more of like a subtextual kind of thing. Like, you know, you're my brother, I trust you, and, you know, you, you can't break this bond. But then, like, with Fast Five and Fast Six, it's like, we're brothers, man. We're, we're brothers. And we're going we're gonna <laughs> to mention that every 25 minutes, you know? Right. And, I mean, and it does, I'm sorry, by Fast, by Furious 7... It's wearing on me. It was wearing on me. And I'm like, you know, that's why, you know, this is why you are weak, you know, because you're about family and loyalty. Well, family's all we get. Oh, God. Okay, whatever. I'm not here to rehash the dialogue. At this point, guys, if you haven't figured out, the acting doesn't really get any better. Um, this is really more along the lines of, are you enjoying the story that's put in front of you? And are you enjoying the action that's being put in front of you? Now, I am fully capable of accepting by this point in the franchise, this is pure action, popcorn, fun, uh, TNA, and car racing. Uh, and I'm fine with that. I, I accept it for what it is, but that doesn't mean it gets a pass on anything else. Um, and this is where the, this is honestly where it really starts picking up steam. The only thing that they've got going is they, is they've decided they need to take down this, um, Oh, it's a drug guy again, right? In this one, is a drug, right? DEA, something like that. I don't know. There's more drugs involved in this one. But they decide that they need to... <laughs> All these plots are starting to run together, man. It gets a little hard to figure, to separate them. Yes, yeah, well, it's the, guy's, um, it's the guy's money that... Um, oh, that's right. Okay, yeah, they're they're gonna steal the 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 bad guy's money from four is what they, they've decided to steal his money in five. Now the movie starts off immediately where the fourth one uh, dropped off, and they are busting Dom out of the prison van on the or the prison bus on his way to jail, which is now what makes Brian a bad guy. Uh, so they're all family, you know. Um, Jordana Brewster's character, you know, she's pregnant or something or going to have a kid or some shit or whatever. Um, but they all go, they all end up in Rio where they're going to steal this guy's money. And then they put the entire team back together. So everybody who, virtually everybody who was in the first four movies is now here in, together for the first time. And the one thing that I will say that I really think brings, makes this movie so much fun is because People who were invested in the franchise could tell. It's one of those things, chemistry. It's like Friends or, uh, you know, Abin Costello or who, you know, any, anybody that you want, any really good team that had chemistry, positive chemistry behind the scenes um, before it may have turned bad <laughs> uh, for certain people or whatever. 
you it translates on the screen and you can see that these people really did in real life they loved each other and they really cared about each other and their personas despite some very very bad acting and over the top delivery of lines it's almost as if these people were really talking to one another and it makes it fun. And I think that's where it becomes really endearing to the general movie public. And then on top of that, now you've got serious action uh, scenes going on. And of course we're introducing Dwayne Johnson into the mix and he's obviously become an established action star. Uh, and he's bringing his brand to some bitch and whoop ass all up into this thing. And okay, fine. The only thing that this movie gets me, and, and I'm a sucker, I'm, I am a sucker for Tyrese Gibson. It's not that he's a good actor. It's just the lines are so damn funny. I mean, you know that they're cheesy and you know that they're being done in a cheesy way. And you know that they're, they're just not good. But for me, they're still funny. And I think what makes it so funny is that he plays the part, he, Roman's, Roman is not self-aware, but it seems like everybody else is self-aware for him, which makes him a very easy target, and a lot of the humor comes at his expense, and it's just very natural, and again, goes back to that thing that I enjoy that dialogue. I enjoy that banter, and I enjoy that dialogue, despite knowing it's pretty terrible acting all the way around. Um, the thing is, is that when you have been trying to top yourself every single time in terms of action, in terms of plot, you start to get the jumping the sharp, nuke in the fridge, whatever you want to call it. And now we have dragging the safe. I think we can safely say dragging the safe is a new one. Um, it's just so completely ridiculously over the top and hocus pocus and Italian job and anything that you can think of where it's all sleight of hand and switching stuff and ridiculous chases. But I liked it. I can't help it. I liked it. And despite the dragging of the safe, I really liked it. 3.75. Hmm. That's cool. Um. So, okay, so this is, now we're starting to get in... Uh, idea territory. Idea, good ideas over, um, over decent execution of those ideas. You know, like more thought is being put into, oh, hey, I got a, I got an awesome idea. We we want a car chase through Rio. Awesome. Let, let, let's do a heist in this one. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, instead of actually doing a heist, let's bypass all the heist and why don't we get two two souped up cars ripping a ten ton maximum security vault from a concrete wall and dragging it through the streets of Rio? That'll be the chase. How how does that sound? Awesome. That sounds so cool. Let's do it. And to be fair, they did it. And if you are a fan of 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 crazy. Um, and, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not meaning this to be, to sound rude to you, Matt, or, or, or trying to be mean to people that, that, that love like mo movies like this, where, uh, I mean, it, it, kind of, I don't, I don't mean like bombastic 
in a bad way, just super over the top, uh, and, and really like the idea of of two cars like dra- going, you know, taking part in a car chase while dragging a huge ass safe behind them. And I'll be fair and say that there were some really cool ideas that they had. I had to get through the fact that they bypassed an actual heist and substituted that with a ridiculous car chase scene. Once I got past that, I, I took notice on some of the cool, like, action-y stuff that they had because they foregone, they, they forego the, the crazy CGI, over-the-top CGI, and they actually do some practical effects. Granted, yes, because we are talking about a 10-ton maximum security safe being drugged through the streets of Rio while the cars are driving however fast that they're driving, there will have to be some CGI. And yes, there's still an abundance of CGI, but it isn't that quite uh, distracting. For me, it was just the idea itself that was distracting. (laughs) Um, And I I think another problem that I had with this movie is that, uh, yes, it was definitely a step in the right direction. And... uh, it was a step in the right direction with the with the directing as well with Justin Lin uh, for what you see in this movie and especially with Fast and Furious Six he grows as a director he has a better grasp at what he wants to do uh, uh, with, with or, or how to make these movies like what the final product what what the final product he has in mind and how to put it to screen I guess if if any of that made sense. But with saying that, with Fast Five, not only do you have like these ridiculous ideas, but it was the build-up in the execution of those ideas. Hey, I I love Die Hard. I love Shoot 'Em Up. I love the crazy, fun, over-the-top action movies, like the next guy. But what makes Shoot 'Em Up or Die Hard um, or any of those other great, you know, Last Action Hero? It's all about the setup, and it's all about the execution of those crazy action scenes and how they go about doing it. It's about the momentum. It's about the pacing. It's about the dialogue. It's about the context. It's about the moments. Yes, that's right, the moments within those action scenes. Now, the problem I had with this movie is that it had a bunch of cut shots. They would talk about doing a heist, or they like like one thing will happen, like one a gun battle or one chase scene will happen. And then five minutes later, they'll talk, they'll rehash some of the same plot over again, or some of the same dialogue or conversation over again. And they'll just jump right into the next, uh, the next car chase scene without there being any buildup. And like I mentioned the last time, if you don't have that buildup, if you don't have those moments, if you don't have that characterization, there's nothing to really care about. And one could argue it's a car chase, Tim. It's a crazy over-the-top idea car chase. Do we really need something to care about? Well, in my opinion, yes, because that adds to the tension, that adds to the suspense when you actually care about and understand and are, are super involved with what's going on. And yes, again, I do understand that there are a lot of people that love this movie. In fact, I know uh, what originally got me into wanting to watch these movies was because of Fast Five and... Everybody told me that it was a great heist movie, but a heist movie, it is not. It is definitely something else, but not a heist, not a true heist movie, I'll say. 
Uh, let's see what else I have here. Stuff just happens. Ideas happen. Uh, like the fight scene between The Rock and Vin Diesel. It looked cool, but was uh, but was it necessary? It was very random. It was very forced. It just happened. Stuff just happens. That's what they should have just called this movie. Fast Five or Fast and Furious. Stuff happens. Or ideas <laughs> where ideas come to fruition. Uh, with this one, I give it... I was kind of going between 3 and 2.75 um i'll be nice and give this one three stars out of five so three for fast five outstanding okay now i would like to point out that i think tim tim hit really hits the nail on the head when he talks about something to care about Because for me, I felt that this was both the beginning and the end of something to care about. Because by the time you've hit the fourth film, and especially with where they were going with this franchise by this point, and bringing everybody in, but but poor Lucas, um, you know, right, Lucas? Right, is that his name? Lucas... Oh, Gomer Pyle? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean... Lucas Black? Is that his name? I think so. We have another, like, 18 of these movies, so I'm sure he'll pop up again. So you bring all these people back, and these these people are the reason that you have that you have this franchise. And I think that the vast majority of people who grew up with the originals or started enjoying them or have just been car enthusiasts and this is kind of like their franchise and these are the people that they identify with, I think that that was enough. And that that family and that camaraderie that I was referring to, that, that you know, it's easy to see that these people really did like each other behind the scenes and it translated on this. I think that's the care that the audiences have, which is why, despite... Not the best writing, and definitely not the best acting. People still like it. It's not just the car chases anymore. At this point, they really do buy into this family, um, this whole family uh, familial element to the franchise. So I think that Tim is what speaks to the people people caring. Whether or not it's it's a legit reason to care. I, I mean, sure that that's definitely something that's that's fair game. But I think that's why they care, even though you specifically did not. I think that's where you'll find most people are like, "No, man, it's good, it's good, I like it." But where it starts to falter, and then really just crumbles in the beginning, then for Fast Five is the post-credit scene of Fast Five that directly leads to Fast uh, to, to Furious Six. Or Fast and Furious Six, um, and the in the post credit scene, The Rock gets handed a file, and he opens up the file, and out pops a picture of Michelle Rodriguez, Rodriguez's character, and she is totally alive. Oh my god! And so you're like, oh great! And so that's what this movie's about. Basically, um, they uh, they go and find they they, they track down Dom. And Brian, and uh, they put the team back because now they have to go and find Letty and figure out what happened to Letty. And the deal is, 
everybody gets pardoned, and we'll get you know we get to find Letty, uh, and we'll help you find the person Letty's working for, which is who um, Hobbs is after, and this is a guy by the name of Shaw. Now, Shaw turns out to be the Moriarty of the Fast and Furious universe, um, going all the way back to Furious. Uh, to, to, to Furious 4, to the Fast and Furious 4, and even subsequently giving us the reason that Han passes away in Tokyo Drift. Now, if you didn't know that by now, I don't know why you're listening, why, you know, yeah, you know, then at least you're just getting the whole story so that you don't have to watch these movies at this point. Um, so yeah, it, this is kind of like the whole shebang. And, when I said at the end of Fast Five, going into Fast Six, it's that we already said. I already said it's tits and ass. It's car races, over the top action. You know, popcorn fun, great. But could it be any more tropey? We've got the whole trope of family, and you know, and, and we've got the whole ro- car racing trope and the over the top action and and everything. And now we're getting into the heist thing and. Now we have amnesia. Really? Amnesia? Because that's never been done. We should probably do that. Because we haven't done it yet in this franchise. They'll never know. Um, it kind of goes back to what Tim was saying with, with, with Fast Five. You know, the idea. Oh, but what if we bring them back? Because amnesia. So, that's the deal. It turns out that... Uh, you know, she had amnesia. She was going to be killed off by Shaw, but Shaw realized that she had amnesia and decided, hey, I'll use this to my advantage. Um, they do, however, seal the plot hole from Fast and Furious because Dom and Shaw have a discussion about there was a body in the casket when they buried what they thought, who they thought was Letty. Um, outside of that, Basically, they chase him around the world. Uh, Shaw is um, trying to make a country go dark, right? That's the that's this one, right? I, yeah. I have no fucking idea, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> My brain hurts by the time. Yeah, this I got one... to the specifics of this one. Yes, the nightshade device. Okay, so this one, uh, in capturing Shaw, they're able to stop him from making an entire country go dark. And um, that's, yeah. And so, and if you could make an entire country go dark, you know, who knows the kind of economic ruin and nuclear ruin and just generally taking over a country and bad shit that would happen. So that's, that's what this guy Shaw is doing. He is, you know, he manipulates drugs and the DEA and he has his fingers in everything and he even manipulated the situation and knew that Brian was going to have Letty go undercover and it was as soon as, you know. So basically they're trying to resolve all of the issues from Fast 4 that work their way into Fast 5 and bring it all to a close in Fast 6. So they do that, you know, they, they go and they're going to Shaw and they're getting, and this is when 
I really feel like the tropey thing starts to jump the boat again because now the big they they have the car races and they do the little fun things and <sighs> they finally track track him down and they they get to us they get to the last stand and it takes place on a runway now i remember when the movie originally came out this is 2013 there was an article there was an uh something on reddit or i i don't know you know imager or whatever and they basically did the math on the runway (laughs) Uh, that this was supposed to take place on, given this, the, the type of cargo plane that it was, th- all of the vehicles involved, the speed at which the vehicles would have to go, uh, in order to bring the plane down, um, and the specially modified vehicles that are used and everything like that. And the end result was that this runway would have had to have been like a little over 116 miles long. But that's not how long this runway is. But so you, but you're supposed to believe that this huge, long, like 15 minute <laughs> car chase taking place on a runway is supposed to like all be happening inside of, I guess, six minutes or something. I don't know. Um, it's just completely over the top. But it's a lot of fun. Again, tons and tons of fun. But it's really at this point, it's starting to, for me. It's starting to wear. Um, I still really enjoyed it, even though it was tropey, I was just getting sick of it, and honestly, if it hadn't been for the stupid tropes, especially, especially the amnesia thing, I think I would have been officially really liked it with four stars, I can't bring myself to do it, so I'm gonna be good and nice 3.75 again for Fast 6. For Furious 6. Wow. This is going to be the only one uh, of the whole franchise that I think we will actually agree on. Uh, Ratings-wise, 3.75 for me. Um, Unlike the others, this is Justin Lin's best. I mean, he definitely has a a firmer grasp on the story and the characters that are being told and the humor and, and what's the style of the movie. Unlike Fast Five... Where you have a lot of stupid shit that happens. For example, they go, uh, the four guys, they go and they break into, like, the police station compound or whatever, where they keep all these souped up cop cars, where surprisingly there are no cameras in sight. They steal those cars, and as, instead of just bringing their, those cop cars back to their hideout, they decide to have a fucking drag race. Like they 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 weren't even like maybe three blocks away from the from the police station. They decide to race four cop cars the day before they're gonna pull off this quote unquote heist. Some stupid shit like that. Other stupid shit, you know, including the Rock, where you know it, it, they could have had a whole storyline where the Rock, you know, given that he's kind of an officer of the law, he could have walked into the police station and did something instead of the you know blowing the safe out of the wall with the two cars and all that stuff. Uh, so there was a lot of, you know, dumbed down stuff like that going on with this movie. Fast Fast and Furious 6, though, kind of smarted it up a little bit with the script, with the dialogue, with the characterizations, and especially with the action. The action was better planned out. Um, there was a setup there was an execution, 
and there was a conclusion, a resolution to the action. It just, you know, you just didn't hop from one scene, then go directly to another scene, and a big, you know, car chase all of a sudden happens, or a big gun battle uh, uh, automatically happens. You know, there was more build-up to it. I actually cared a little bit about people. And on top of that, the humor was already... Uh, was in was more intact. Was funny. I actually laughed at Tyrese Gibson's uh, uh, little comments and little anecdotes he had throughout the movie. And I think what really had uh, what really helped this film out was because it's different. It's vastly different from Furious Seven. It's vastly different from Fast Five, as well as Fast and Furious, the fourth movie, because. It's not a movie about bringing the gang back together. Because four of those movies, or at least three of the movies, are all about bringing the gang back together. Let's just bring the, you know, and then you have to go through the whole setup of, oh, the gang's back together, let's have some little anecdotes and, you know, Tyrese, make a few comments about how better you are than, how much better you are than anybody else, you know. Oh, okay, well, going through the motions. Well, this one, you know, out of maybe since the first movie, you don't feel like you're going through the motions. It feels fresher. It feels a little bit new. And better yet, it's 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 fun. Um, let's see. Pretty cool action. Not the best action. Uh, it's not too over the top until the last two car chases. And that's what I really liked. Unlike the other movies where they got better as, you know, the time went on, this movie was great and then slowly got a little ridiculous. But I'm all okay with ridiculousness close to the end of the movie because they build towards it. It's even like with uh, Die Hard 2 where the action built to the plane fight, to the plane scene at the end of the movie because, hell, that movie is... Or the ending of that movie is, well, not as quite as ridiculous as the ending of this movie. But, it you know, it, it's up there for a, a late 80s, early 90s action movie. But this movie, again, builds to the ridiculousness, and I appreciate it. Though it does better with build-up, there is still room to improve. And that is still a little too obvious with this movie. A little too obvious that I couldn't give it more than 3.75 out of 5. Uh, which is a shame, because I really wanted to love this movie, but it wasn't quite there. But still, you know, fair rating, I'll give it that. So, 3.75 out of 5 for me. Alright, well then, here we are, folks. Last but not least, Furious 7. Now, remember when we talked about tropes just a few minutes ago? And I mentioned that Shaw was entangled in everything all the way up to and including Tokyo Drift because naturally Tokyo Drift was, instead of being a prequel, like I said, it should have been, it was, um, it was placed chronologically after six. So the events of the world of the universe are one, two, four, five, six, three, and now seven because Han is dead in this movie. Uh, and it turns out that it wasn't just some random accident in Tokyo Drift that caused this to occur. No, 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 no. It was Shaw's brother. Yes, because naturally, we can't just let this go. No, we have to have a brother. And it turns out Shaw, Shaw wasn't even killed at the end of, at the end of six. 
no, no, no. He's like in a coma and like all crippled up and everything. But he's still alive. Still alive. So he can live, but somehow Gal Gadot's character cannot. Whatever. Um. So, and, and then of course, um, Jason Statham is playing Shaw's brother. And he's supposed to be um, kind of like the evil version of Jason Bourne. Why not? Let's the evil British version of Jason Bourne. Let's, let's show that 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 works. And um, the idea behind this one is that it's revenge. Now they're going after Shaw because Shaw is killing. He's killed Han. He blew up their house. He's tried to kill everybody. And. They run into a, you know, black ops head honcho dude played by Kurt Russell, who then says, look, um, you know, Shaw, we, we, we actually need you to do something for me. Here's, here's what I need. We've got this bad, bad guy terrorist dude. Um, he's got a hacker. And if you guys can rescue this hacker... The hacker has this thing, it's a chip, that basically is called the God's Eye. And it, and and anybody who saw uh, The Dark Knight, it's that. Except instead of just using it for sonar, you're using it for full-on video and audio. Does the same thing as the shit that happened in Dark Knight. Um, Justin Lin is no longer with us here. He he had a fabulous send-off with uh, Furious 6. James Wan is in the director's chair for this film. And, strictly speaking, this is supposed to be the new arc of another trilogy. And even with the death of Paul Walker, uh, there, is, there are still plans for 8 and 9 to happen, like it or not. The idea here, though, is this one, yeah. So if you rescue this, this hacker... And give us the God's eye, uh, because we don't want this to be in terrorist hands. We want it to be in good guy hands. We'll let you use it to capture Shaw and catch Shaw and get your revenge on Shaw, because not only would it help us to have the God's eye thing and save this hacker who is also useful, everybody on in Europe and Britain is after Shaw's brother anyway, so if you take him out, it helps us all the way around. So we'll let you use God's eye. And, of course, they agree. Um, and now it takes them all over the world. They go from, to, from, from like, London again to, um, to, to America to United Arab Emirates. They go to, like, Abu Dhabi and everything. Uh, and if you thought the action was damn retarded in, by the end of Fast and Furious 6... No, you you have to see the car chase with the, like, you know, bajillion dollar car that's bulletproof but goes from zero to 60 in less than three seconds and is kept in a penthouse safe that goes through not one, not two, but three buildings. Remember, penthouse through three buildings. Uh, Honestly, as dumb and as over-the-top and ridiculous as it is, I laughed my ass off. It was entertaining. I must say that it was entertaining. Once again... Sucker for Tyrese Gibson, uh, who was just in the most rarest of form for this film, especially with the fucking birthday gag. Um, but I'm also a sucker for, sucker for Kurt Russell. And I legitimately liked his character. 
Um, I really just, you can really see how they were kind of running out of ideas to keep Dwayne Johnson involved. Um, it's like they want him to be part of the franchise, but they're more or less diametrically opposed. His character is like completely lawful good. And you have the, you know, Dom and and the family and they're kind of like chaotic neutral. So for anybody in the, like the, you know, in the RPG realm, paper and pen RPG realm, you, they don't mix, but they have occasion to work together. But the biggest problem for me with this is that in its complete tropishness and just ridiculously over the topness, it's almost like they left. It's like they left the soul of the movie behind somewhere. And. They completely, for me, and for me alone, and this will probably be pretty unpopular for all of the fans of this movie and the people who have been rating it relatively highly, I think they botched the ending. I'm sorry. I, you know, from all, from from everything you read or and whatever, Paul Walker was a very nice guy. Uh, he was very friendly. He was clearly well-loved by Vin Diesel uh, in real life. But I think that the finest and shining examples of honoring someone who legit passed away is to just, just like in real life, shit can happen. I think if you're going to have a complete franchise, and especially if you're just going to carry on a franchise, when something tragic happens, something tragic needs to happen. And I think they should have killed him. I'm sorry. I think Paul Walker's character should have died. It would have been terrible. It would have been sad. It would have been completely jerky, especially for someone who like, who, who like me enjoyed the camaraderie of the cast, even though again, not great acting, not the you know best writing. I enjoyed the camaraderie of the cast because they enjoyed their camaraderie. But this whole lackluster CGI throw shit together to make him retire, then now they have no way to address him in the next movie, but he's still alive. And the whole point of everything that's gonna happen is well, we're family, right? That's what that that's what Tim was saying. Well, half your damn family's missing. And what are you gonna do? And they're not just family, quote unquote. That is your goddamn sister, your niece and nephew, and your fucking brother-in-law. Like legit, not just we're family because we've run together. And now, uh, you know, what are we just gonna do? We are we we just gonna have Mia have a phone call scene or something? Oh, hey, Brian, come in here. Oh, sorry, he's he's busy with the kids right now. <laughs> he's out mowing the lawn. Yeah. Oh, I mean, me. Well, is... that guy, he's so domesticated. Guy, he's always outside doing something. Yeah, and it's like they they restructured the ending of the movie based on his death. And I understand, but it was a complete break from not only the storyline they set up for the entire damn movie where you could see he missed the action. It was hard for him to make this transition. Even if he ultimately would have been happy with it anyway or whatever, you could see that it was just such a stark contrast, especially with arguably the best scene of the movie and probably the finest acting that Brian or that Paul Walker did is the phone call scene right before the finale where he's talking to Mia and he's like, you know, I love you, Mia. And she's like, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't. That's like goodbye. You know, um, 
And it, it should have been. It, it should have been. I, I was talking to Tim about this before. I hearken back to news radio when Phil Hartman passed. And like I said before, regardless of how you feel about Glee, the, te- the television show, you, I give them props. They didn't just pretend that, you know, Corey Monteith's character transferred off and, you know, played highway, you know, football in, in the fabulous football fields of heaven or something. No, he died. And it was tragic and it was sudden and it was unexpected and it was sad. And their fans got to experience that. And the same with Phil Hartman. He was shot in the fucking head. You know? That's sick and sad and tragic. And in the show, he just had a heart attack and dropped off. They should He should have gone out in a blaze of glory. I'm sorry. They should have killed off his character. Um, because it could have it would have been enough that they could have legitimately been upset and crying and really shared those feelings and channeled that stuff and i think it would have been an even more emotional drag than these people that i read about online like on reddit or anywhere else that you see on facebook and stuff oh the ending was so sad i was crying the ending is long and drawn out and drug out and it's dumb okay and then to completely shift gears with this whole fucking vin diesel pretending to die shit um with and then to completely shift gears and have it be all try to be all sappy and everything with them leaving Brian off to his own devices i just yeah it was you know whatever and then the whole the cgi at the very end is i'm sorry it's completely uncanny valley like it was so obvious that it was cgi and while it was cool, I will say that, you know, the whole little split where the cars go off left, you know, they, they split off from one another while they're racing and everything like that, you know, um, and they have his and they have Brian's car driving off kind of into the sunset and everything. That was a nice touch. I'll give it that. That was a nice touch. But everything leading up to that is just so disheveling. I couldn't I just couldn't handle it. Um, it, it wasn't good. And it and it really hurt it. However, um, I liked Kurt, uh, Russell. I liked his character. He was a, he was a fun character. Really great. Um, I liked the fact that the stupid, you know, bajillion dollar car went from a penthouse floor in Abu Dhabi through three buildings. I, it, it was dumb and over the top, but I liked it. And I liked the camaraderie and it was kind of nice to see it send off, but the, but the tropes and just the ridiculousness of the tropes. And I think the ending not being um, true to the form of what truly happened in life hurt it. But I still liked it, and I'm going to be nice and give it 3.25. Bring us home. <laughs> Way to drag it out, Matt. Way to drag Sorry. out. Sorry. I'm kidding. Uh, th- okay, one way to explain or to express my feelings towards this movie is that it was way overblown. Every single aspect. Uh, the sappiness at the end, though I, I mean, I didn't mind it as much as Matt with him, uh, like going them going their separate ways. Because I actually that was that was a really cool touch with one car going one way and the other car going that way. And honestly, that's how they should have, you know, they could have had one little sappy moment and then move on to that instead of it like building up to one long. You know, the, the you know pretty pretty much building up to the montage, the Paul Walker montage at the end of the movie. So the sappiness was overblown, the action was overblown, the special effects, 
oh yeah, way overblown. It was just ridiculous. Everybody clashed with each other. Even The Rock clashed with everybody. And I was starting to like his character in the sixth movie. Kind of like the... He was more of like... He was like the old-fashioned guy, you know. Kind of a sovinish... A, 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 a sovinish... A sovinistic... A sovinistic... Oh, God. I can't even say that word right now. Chauvinistic? Thank you. Sure. <laughs> Kind of towards, I mean, he kind of is, but then he jokes around about it. Like, woman, I do, the, then he makes himself the, the butt of a joke. But then other times he's actually an asshole. And I really can't tell whether if we're supposed to like, I mean, I'm, we're supposed to like the guy. But then are we not supposed to like him? And then you, you know, you, you find out he has a daughter that he's, you know, that he loves his daughter and they have a great relationship for like 10 seconds and then he goes off and leaves her behind. I, I just, I mean... They try to set so many emotions and so many feelings. Uh, they try to set all that up on the audience to make them feel certain ways. Not just towards The Rock, not just towards whatever characters, whether it be Paul Walker or, or Vin Diesel, but they also set up the action in that way as well. Because this movie, where Fast and Furious 6 took a giant step forward, this movie took a giant step back. It is on par with Fast Five. Actually, it's to me, it's one little notch down from Fast Five. To me, this is a 2.75 out of 5 movie for me. Um, the acting, the script is, is horrific. Tyrese Gibson is annoying as shit. Nobody stands out. Um, Vin Diesel, he is like in full, uh, him and, him and, um, Michelle Rodriguez are in full Mexican soap opera mode. Uh, a lot of long looks, a lot of slow talking, you know, Liddy, I am your, I am your husband. We've been together, babe. We've been together, you know, ride fast or, uh, you know, they, then they just start quoting, you know, scenes from previous movies and it, it's just ridiculous. And it, it's just, again, it's over the top and bombastic, though it does have some entertaining moments. I was wanting the movie to be over pretty much from the shitty opening uh, where uh, where you, you, you were first introduced to the villain, to the bad guy. And then there's like a supposed continuous shot as you're going through the hospital and you finally realize that he pretty much broke his way into the hospital to see his brother and you start seeing the place start falling apart. Well, it's all CGI. The camera does the really shitty, stupid thing where it moves slowly and then it speeds up and then it moves slowly again and then it speeds up again in classic James Wan a Saul movie fashion because that's where he got that's where he first started doing all that you know really dumb uh, uh, you know speeding up the the camera movements and whatnot is from the Saul movies and he just kind of implemented that in this movie um, does he add any of his own touch to this movie like is it obvious very little there are some really cool camera movements and that's about it because they rehash the same cool camera movements over and over again like if a character flop uh, flips over something, the camera actually follows the person as they flip over a couch or whatever. Well, that happens once or twice with every single action scene. Uh, again, the last action scene is way over the top and stupid and ridiculous. I'm talking about Transformer-level ridiculous. Yet, it does have some redeeming moments. I did enjoy the ending, though it was over the top, ridiculous, overly sentimental, 
I thought it could have been done a whole lot worse. And, you know, in, in some way they did the right thing. Yet, this movie will not hold up ten years from now. In fact, I don't think any of these movies, other than maybe the first one, and possibly the second one because it's so bad it's good, these movies will not hold up 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now. Because they rely on the movie that came before it to tell the story. You know, especially with the characterizations, with with, with all that stuff. They're relying on special effects and... You, you know, relying on the audience participation and how emotionally evolved or involved they are with the characters. It just doesn't hold up in the long run. So again, that's why I give Fury 7 2.75 out of 5. And I think if they have to retitle this these movies at all, they should retitle it Zero Traffic. Because anytime there's a, there's a, there's a car chase happening, there is, in fact, zero traffic at all times. Right on. All right. Well, then that brings us to the end of the movies. And next week, the movies are going to be Blaine Stritch, Shoot Me, Force Majeure, and Dear White People, which apparently are part of a BuzzFeed article. So I'm not quite sure why we're doing that, because BuzzFeed's the devil. But whatever. These are apparently part of a BuzzFeed article, 24 movies you probably missed this year, but should probably see, which actually was from last year because the article was published in December. But uh, at any rate, so yeah, so those are movies for next week. And I believe that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can also climb aboard the Information Superhighway and try and track down Tim on Twitter if you you like that as well you can also subscribe to us on itunes and or favorite us on stitcher radio so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to rosie perez i get to say this we all like indie directors heck i even married one but we're divorced now and this is tim saying god i'm so glad we did not do a segment three this week Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.